0: I actually really wanted to find a study on, like, personality and, like, preference for, like, black jelly beans or something like that.
1: There is one on bitterness. It was, like, black coffee, gin, slinking it to psychopathy because <laughs> it was kind of a tolerance for aversive stimuli. Yeah, right. But I'm low in psychopathy and I like those things. So.
0: Low <laughs> as compared to who?
1: <laughs> Society.
0: <laughs> in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition, it's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations
2: for things.
1: Hello and welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy and I'm joined by Hunter. Hello. Hello, how are you? We're good. We're very excited tonight because it's our 20th episode. Uh, So we're going rogue and covering off a whole bunch of different topics like we did for our 10th. If you haven't listened to that, it's my favorite, I think.
0: It it was certainly fun. Yeah, it it was. So what we're doing is we're doing a 10 10 things we came across uh, episode. So if you've not listened to the pod before, that won't make any sense.
1: Essentially, it's just any topic... That you might kind of stumble across while you're looking for something else, that seems a little bit unusual, or that you know piques your interest,
0: and that things that that probably don't necessarily have a direct clinical application. Yeah, you know, as a psychologist. Although that said, I reckon some of these I could weave into conversation, but
1: yeah one of mine definitely is, but it's in there for another reason <laughs> <laughs> so as per usual, we would love it if you rated us on iTunes or uh, emailed us with any sort of feedback or ideas about the show to shrinkspod at gmail.com uh, or visited our website to shrinkspod. com <laughs> or surprisingly enough, our Twitter handle which any guesses for what it might be? Two shrink Pod. Yes. At Two Shrinks Pod. <laughs> exactly. Which is new and we're playing around with. So,
0: If you're interested, uh, follow us or tweet at us. Suggestions, ideas, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because, um, you know, usually on a Tuesday night or a Monday night, there's this frantic series of phone calls between Amy and I about, no, we don't like the topic of the pod that we've decided to do and we're going to just like rework it completely.
1: Yeah. So, prime time of getting <laughs> an obscure topic in there is <laughs> it's good. Monday. That's
0: it. Yeah. Actually, nothing. I'm going to tweet out a picture about something that's relating to one of my pods, uh, one of my articles later. Really? It, it'll make sense. Okay. <laughs> so, so the format's going to be that we are just going to tag team. We're going to try and uh, keep an eye on the time and not talk too long. Yeah. And jump from topic to topic. Should be sounds good.
1: So you're up first.
0: Yes, I am. So are you? You're an, are you an oldest child?
1: Well, sort of. Sort of. I'm I'm an only child and then I have half siblings that yeah. are younger than me. You lived with them? No.
0: No. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I'm a middle child.
1: Yeah.
0: And all first children are only children until they get siblings. Yeah. So anyway, so I I went looking for something on middle child syndrome, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that we're left out and unloved and but also like somehow Which is
1: so Common that that's what people will describe. It's fascinating.
0: But then also, I feel like we're superior somehow. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, I found a paper called Birth Order and Preschool Children's Co- Cooperative Abilities Are Within Family Analysis. And the author is, uh, lead author is Heather Prime it's, um, in a 2017 paper, British Journal of Developmental Psychology. So, it's a Canadian study. And they wanted to look at birth order effects and so on child cooperation skills, and so which is like being able to work together on a shared goal. So that's like a unique human trait, They like sort of, you know, government yeah, or, you know, lighting a fire, all sorts of stuff, right? Yep. Like
1: basic survival kind of stuff, basic survival to all the, way through. Like yep. the
0: whole society thing. So kind of important. So they talk about sibling relationships is a main area in which we learn social skills. Mm-hmm. And so kindergartners with one to two siblings are rated by teachers as having stronger social and interpersonal skills than those with no siblings. Yeah. And I often reckon I can tell if someone's an only child or Mm. like, or when someone's, or when I find out someone's an only child, it sort of somehow just makes sense. Yeah. Does that make, yeah,
1: it does. I think the other thing that plays into it is about like childcare before school as well Mm. or like, being looked after with other kids or things like that. Like there sort of seems to be... That
0: socialisation.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, so there's indications that later born kids have an advantage in the social domain. Yeah. But studies have been inconsistent in the results. And they also, these authors sort of talking about that they think that the quality of the relationship with siblings is important, so Mm -hmm. not just birth order effects. Yeah. So it doesn't... It's not just like that. where you come in the pecking order or the age, not so much pecking order, but like how good are those relationships? That mm-hmm. that? So so as part of a larger study the kids, family and places study, which is a longitudinal birth cohort study, uh, looking at children's socio emotional development to within family differences, mm-hmm. 144 families, 288 children. Wow. I think they sampled the families when the youngest was three. It was, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't quite follow it, but I was probably rushing, but Parents reported on a pro, on pro behavior of the children at home via a questionnaire scale, and then they had testers directly assessing cooperative abilities in tests that they did at home okay. with the children All right so it was this collaborative problem solving task where they had a box that was with a wrapped up finger puppet inside, and the box could only be opened by two people acting simultaneously mm-hmm. one holding the levers down and one holding pulling the drawer open mm-hmm. And so the child wasn't told how to do it. And the tester would say, I'm a robot, and sometimes they'll be touching the box, and sometimes they won't. And when they were touching, they'd either be pushing the levers or pulling the drawer. Yeah. And and so the child would have to coordinate their actions, okay. right? Okay, yeah. And so there were several levels of difficulty. So one, they, like the first one was like, you just like if they failed the, the highest level of difficulty, which was that they were touching it at this sort of intermediate time, they would kind of decrease it. And the easiest trial was like with the instruction kind of stuff. Okay, so yeah. Two trials, they videotaped it and rated it, right? And then they also got uh, a measure of maternal sensitivity of so like awareness of child's needs and promoting autonomy and that kind of stuff. So did multi level level modelling mm-hmm. as a results? I don't know what that is anyway. <laughs> Yep, nodding along. Not a lot. Not I, a lot. I, I could follow. I could follow enough. Anyway, when testing the model, they found that it explained seven point eight percent of the variance, in addition to all the other factors controlled for mm-hmm. things like, so like age. Age being a fairly significant predictor of how good you could cooperate with yeah. someone. So, what they found was that being a youngest child was positively associated with co- uh, cooperation scores, mm-hmm. but being in the middle unfortunately for me, was not com- oh. compared with firstborn children. So if okay. you're the youngest of three, yeah. then you, you had the best cooperation. Yeah, Middle child was not. So the middle child was no different to the firstborn. But there was a significant interaction between the middle child and pro-social behavior, specifically that middle child status predicted their cooperation ability if other siblings had high levels of pro-social behavior.
1: Okay. So they kind of learnt from their other siblings. So, or kind so of yeah. So basically one another's. Yeah.
0: So youngest and middle children were advantaged in their cooperation as compared with firstborn children, but the, the middle, mid, middle kids, it was only if the older sibling demonstrated pro-social behavior. Okay. Yeah. Right. So basically like if your oldest sibling is pro-social, which is... Um,
1: so, helping other people, sharing, yeah. sort of caring if someone else is hurt, that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, if they're like that, then as a middle child...
1: You're... you're yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, I can't, like, unfortunately... <laughs> lay claim to everything. How uh, many
1: articles did you search for looking for evidence of...
0: Evidently not enough, I would say. Um, Although it was significant, but it wasn't a large effect. So 8% or so of the variance. Yeah. So, um, and things like age was a fairly important factor. They talk about symmetrical rather than hierarchical interactions as being important for social cultural development of children. So basically... In English, civil, sibling relationships are more symmetrical because you are similar age and, and developmental level, whereas parent parents is like more hierarchical. So, you know, through pretend play, they have, have to have an awareness of their own and others' mental states. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the, the what this sort of says, you know, the, the timing and the quality of the input gives yeah. an advantage. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It really. does. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. But not simply enough to have other people around. No.
0: Yeah. No. Interesting. Anyway. <laughs> number two
1: so you know how we've talked about exercise and mood yep on and off air a fair bit yeah and you're very pro like you've got to really exercise hard like you gotta work up a sweat to have an impact on yeah, your mood y- yeah yeah well i was thinking about whether that actually was true because it's always exercise in general, but no one ever kind of says which type? how much, which type, mm. when.
0: Because you don't sweat when swimming, and I would say swimming is very good. It's probably yeah. one of the best.
1: Yeah. But like yoga, I feel better after yoga. Mm. Whereas you'd go.
0: Well, I've never done yoga, so uh, I, can't see, I have to say. get to a yoga class.
1: Anyway, mm. so essentially, these researchers of the article Training Fast or Slow Exercise for Depression, a Randomized Control Trial by Helga Dotter and colleagues in preventative medicine in 2016. They were interested in looking at what the optimal dosage was. So they've got a huge large-scale study in Mm -hmm. Sweden that's got three arms to it with 310 participants in each group. Wow. Yeah, so one's receiving CBT, one's receiving treatment as usual, One's receiving exercise broken down into three different groups. For what problems? For depression primarily. Yeah. But some people have comorbid
0: Other stuff, yeah. Other yeah. stuff, yeah. yeah.
1: So they drew from this sample and looked just at the treatment as usual and exercise groups. and
0: The treatment as usual would be getting what?
1: Getting some sort of therapy. Some of them were under antidepressants. So not intensive or particular focus, yeah. just... Yeah, so quite variable like what it would be in the community. So then they randomly assigned people in the exercise group to light exercise, which was yoga, moderate, which was intermediate aerobics Mm -hmm. class, or vigorous, which was an advanced aerobics class, for 55-minute classes three times a week for 12 weeks. And if they weren't able to attend a session, then they completed an equivalent activity. So like if they missed yoga, they'd do 55 minutes of Walking, Mm -hmm. so equivalent intensity. They rated their depression severity at baseline and at post-treatment, did a whole bunch of demographics, yada, yada, yada. Only a third of people completed at least 12 sessions over that period, but all three groups showed a greater reduction in depression severity than treatment as usual, and there were no significant differences between exercise groups. So all three improved.
0: So this proves my point, doesn't it, that exercise is good? Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> but not your dismissing of my my yoga. <laughs> and among women...
0: I'm going to have the, to listen back to like all, all of the 19 previous pods to see where i have like, dismissed your yoga on air.
1: Not on air. <laughs> <laughs> so for men, it was all groups and there was no significant sort of difference between. For women, the light and the vigorous groups had a significant reduction but the moderate group didn't. So then when you su- separate it by diagnosis, if you only included the people with depression or comorbid depression and anxiety, then the light exercise group was the only one that was significantly better than treatment as usual in reducing Reasonably depression if you, symptoms. if you
0: pulled it all together? If you pulled
1: any mental health stuff that included some depression, it was any exercise. But if it was specifically depression or depression and anxiety... Then yoga was your best bet. I wonder why. Don't know. So I found it interesting.
0: I wonder whether there's uh, that would correlate with se- severity of depression. And so, like, if you're really, really depressed and you've got like fatigue and all that kind of stuff, then they found then no relationship. Do- doing a lot of exercise would would be harder to do, and that' why that's why it wouldn't depression wouldn't.
1: They kind work. of thought the opposite. That so for people in the light exercise group, perhaps if they were quite depressed and weren't doing much exercise beforehand, that any increase in exercise would have a positive yeah. effect. Yeah. And that also that if they were placed in the high intensity or moderate intensity, that perhaps they reduced their other sort of incidental exercise because it was tiring doing those. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, so
1: it,
0: it kind of. Yeah. Like it's like, I guess it was, was like, maybe it's like, it's too much too soon kind of yeah. for, for like a higher intensity.
1: Yeah. But I found it interesting because it's always like a lot of the research has always been on aerobic Exercise mm. and a lot of the emphasis is on that side of things. Yeah. And so this is a first of comparing oh. multiple different types of exercise.
0: Yeah and also you would wonder with the depression like whether you know, because everyone talks about kind of like particularly with aerobic, so like you know, it's the endorphins and the, yeah. and the and the sweating it out and the blah, blah blah. But I wonder whether some of it is actually like the act of doing it, the the mental space side yeah. of it, the changing the scenery, the those kinds of other things. Like, and I imagine with yoga, like there's a, a level of like learning a skill and yeah. things like that. So,
1: and you have to focus; you can't just
0: yeah. So okay. I mean, all of those things that. It'd be interesting to partial, like to partial out, like versus mm. like kind of like oh, I had a workout. Yeah, but I mean, like I because I know when I go for a run, like yeah. it's it's not just that I physically feel good. There's like it's a, the mental space I mean, it's about, like and that you're in, and that's why I always talk about swimming as being a really good yeah. exercise for people because it. It's this is sort of meditation on the black yeah. line, essentially yeah. in the middle of the pool, and
1: which is why I think a lot of people don't do it because they kind of go, "I can't handle the silence and the yeah,
0: yeah." yeah. So it mean, it depends on where you're at, yeah, yeah. Interesting, yeah. All right, so I think we're going to go now. We're going go with a study that is perhaps a little concerning. Yep, it's one of these things I like about psychology that you can
1: creep yourself out,
0: creep yourself out, <laughs> but. In in this kind of way, we 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 think that we have a good understanding of our motivations Mm -hmm. for, for example, who we find attractive.
1: Yeah, but we. But
0: perhaps there's like this whole like really other level of like prime primal kind of level. Yeah, and so this this stuff always fascinates me. So, question: Hmm. name of one or two uh, celebrities that you find attractive?
1: (laughs) Benedict Cumberbatch. Yep. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Couple.
0: Do they have similar <laughs> color, ha- hair and eye color to your to either of your parents?
1: Um. Well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has dark hair, and both my parents have dark hair. Yep. They're both pale and both my parents are pale, <laughs> but that's probably... And
0: I thought I, I, it was hard to remember. I can't. So, so this is a... I remember, I, but no, not okay. the same I-colour. So, so this paper is called Experiences During Specific Hang Development... Hang on
1: a second. We didn't flip it the other way around.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm asking the questions here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's convenient.
0: <laughs> so this paper is called Experiences During Specific Developmental Stages Influence Facial Preferences. It's by Thames and Saxton from Northumbria University in Newcastle in the UK. It's a 2016 paper mm-hmm. and published in Evolution and Human Behaviour. I'm always impressed when it's a single author. Yeah. Like it, there's something just really impressive about it. FYI, incredibly well referenced. Nice. And I read one of her other other, other articles as well. Also. Is, with, yeah, that was also, yeah, it was great. Nice. Anyway, so it starts off, many standard facial attractiveness judgments become apparent within the first decade of life. So out of a list of like heaps. Four four to five-year-olds agree with adults explicitly about who or who is not attractive. Mm -hmm. Neonates and infants spend more time looking at attractive versus unattractive faces. Symmetrical faces are preferred by 12 to 24 month Hmm. So, And then there was a few others listed. So interestingly and somewhat disturbingly, (laughs) a large amount of research has shown that adults tend to be attracted to physical features that bear resemblance to those of our parents.
1: Which kinda of makes sense in a way that we we like what we know.
0: Yeah, yeah, some interesting like, evolutionary theories around it. So yeah. like we're attracted to and choose partners of the other sex of parents. So this is this is for heterosexual yeah. relationships, which was the predominant relationships, probably that the ones that are much easier to research. Mm. Sorry if you're not in a heterosexual relationship. But so we're attracted to and choose partners of the other sex parent even and this This relationship is seen even in adopted women choosing partners similar to their adopted father.
1: Okay, so it's who they're around when they're growing up rather than biologically. Yeah,
0: so there's even a preference if you've got an older parent for older faces Hmm. and preference for hairiness by women associated with their father's hairiness, Mm. preference for height for women according to their father's height. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what they found is that preferences for faces is stronger if there's a good relationship with their parent in childhood. Okay. So what this study wanted to do is to tease apart this a bit more clearly and look at whether there's a phase within development that is particularly instrumental in the formation of individual differences in facial preferences, particularly looking at the quality of the relationship during childhood influences these sort of previously observed patterns
1: okay so how strong that relationship is or Uh, how good it is okay
0: yeah or how good it was i should say so this is so this study is looking at heterosexual women's preferences for partner hair and eye coloration okay 145 participants mostly psych undergrads Mm -hmm. online survey they ask about ideal partner actual partner mothers and fathers Mm -hmm. asking about hair color and eye color for all of these, Right. emotional support from the parents in four age ranges: so six to ten and a half years, which they label middle childhood; mm-hmm. ten and a half to half a year after the start of menarche; mm-hmm. half a year after the start of menarche to sixteen, and then current time. Okay. Okay. So, so it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting breakdown, sort of like pre-puberty, yeah, like peri-puberty. Yeah. Say peri, mm-hmm. maybe, and then puberty kind yeah. of thing. So, what they found. A woman's mum's hair colour predicted the hair colour that a woman selected for her ideal partner and hair colour that her actual partner had. Huh. And there was a weaker effect for the dad's hair colour. Yeah. But same direction. Mm Mm-hmm. And this matches prior research. But they noticed that this relationship disappeared when they removed non-white participants from the sample. And so yeah. that seemed to be to do with removing diversity of color from the sample. Yeah. Um, so like the darker hair out of it. Hmm. And not consistent with prior research, eye color partners was not predicted by their own or parent eye colors. Hmm. So, but what they found was when they looked at um, the role of emotional support, so for eye color... Mm-hmm a woman was more likely to select an eye color that was closer to her father's if they received more emotional support from him in the post-menarchal phase. Hmm. But higher emotional support by dad during the middle childhood predicted a greater difference between dad's eye color than their actual or ideal partner eye color. Interesting. Yeah. Same pattern was found for their mum. or similar pattern was found for their mum. So... High emotional support in middle childhood, yep. pre Yeah. greater difference in eye colour. Yeah, but post closer emotional support, closer eye colour.
1: Hmm, interesting.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So that is people are not attracted to those whom they're close socially with during childhood. Yeah. Yep. And so the author talks about this and saying, well, parental models may be used to provide positive and negative sexual imprinting. In Humans and that depends on the specific age of exposure. Mm-hmm. So negative s- sexual imprinting reduces the risk of forming a reproductive relationship with someone too closely related, so yep. like inbreeding. But there's positive sexual imprinting benefits, so supporting optimal outbreed, what they call optimal outbreeding. So excessive outbreeding, so like like really really different, someone mm-hmm. really really different, might separate genes that work well together. Right. in a particular environment. Yeah. And so, this this intermediate level of relatedness is better. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. And so, enough that you're different from to get some new genes and stuff like that, but not too different from. And so, there's some interesting kinds of things around that, like that you might be selecting a partner who has adapted to the local environment well, just as you have kind of thing that stuff so hmm. and some other kind of theories around that so interesting they found in iceland during a 165 year period the optimal level of relatedness was about a third or fourth cousin so okay in yeah kind of like optimal outbreeding
1: thing. yeah interesting
0: so yeah so go home <laughs> have a look at your partner <laughs> and then look at pictures of your parents <laughs>
1: You realise that you may be destroying a bunch of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Just by that one instruction.
0: Address all emails to amy at gtringspod <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> all
2: right, where are we
1: going? Oh, uh, All right, so so we're going to one that, that I found really interesting but kind of depressing. Is that okay? Yep, sure. Yep. Uh, so I was looking at for something around gender and media or toys or something in what could,
0: childhood. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> exactly.
1: <time. laughs> I I did find several. I kept it to one. Otherwise, this was going to be an entirely childhood gender-focused podcast. Sure. Yeah. There's some interesting stuff out there. Anyway. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, so. I,
0: I, I can't do that topic because I'd become – I'd be accused of mansplaining.
1: Yeah. That, that's the – Yeah. That's why I stopped and just just went for one. Uh, So this article is called Boys Can Be Anything, effect of Barbie play on girls' career cognitions by Sherman and Zerbrigen in sex roles in 2014. So they provided a really detailed literature review and sort of background to set up why it was that they did this study they talked about how there are still gender segregated occupations, so that there's a far higher proportion of men in occupations related to sort of computers, mathematics, architecture, engineering, construction. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, that women are more likely to be employed in social service occupations, personal care, service occupations of any sort, Mm -hmm. educational, library, that sort of thing.
0: Well, psychology is... Female-dominated. 75% female-dominated.
1: Yeah. And there are still disparities in pay between genders. It's like recent research, it wasn't in this, but about sort of, you know, that fields that are female-dominated tend to be paid lower than fields Mm. that are male-dominated, things like that. So they talk about how there are multiple factors that contribute, but they were interested in the impact of gender role socialisation on career choice. And spoke about how early on we start to develop these kind of Uh, gender schemas for understanding the world. Mm. So we learn what is and isn't appropriate according to our gender. Yeah. So they draw on objectification theory to talk about how that maybe exposure to sexualized dolls like Barbie would elicit a state of sexualization in young girls Mm -hmm. and
0: So with this sexualisation, what do they mean?
1: Yeah, so they provided a lot of information about that, but essentially that a person's value comes only from their sexual appeal or behaviour to the exclusion of all other characteristics. So they essentially become an object for other people's desire. It's sort of related to a narrow standard of physical attractiveness or times when sexuality is put onto someone else sort of outside of it. So they gave examples like things like children's clothes being having sexualized elements like mm. sort of low cut or revealing or things like that that don't fit with the rest of kind of what children are doing yeah sort of yeah, like yeah. adult clothes shrunk down those kind of things
0: yeah but like a particular subset of adult clothes shrunk down yeah, yeah. so because i was thinking in my head like what's the difference between say like a ray star wars doll yeah and a barbie yeah yeah, yeah and then that kind of thing
1: yeah yeah so that sort of sexualization starts from Early on and mm, continues early, yeah. all the way through, like this you know, research about infants and just putting them in different clothes and the different ways that people respond to them. And it's related to lower confidence for school age girls. So particularly in things like mathematical ability and body image and psychological well-being, that's all been related to... Increased sexualization and that then adults tend to rate sexualized images as lower in self-respect lower in more in morality intelligence and capability Mm. so when you just put different different clothes on the same woman Mm. that's the sort of difference so sexualized or appearance based careers tend to be seen by adolescent girls as more viable or desirable than those focused on intellect or academic ability so they're kind of thinking if it's already set by adolescence where does it start so some toys convey gender roles and objectification and barbie is a particular example of that absolute prime example yeah so they made a comment about the sort of unrealistic standard of barbie and then i remembered seeing something some research online and so i went off on a tangent about that Some researchers had sized up Barbie to adult size. Yeah, she's
0: like seven foot and like really like super skinny or something. So her
1: waist is too small to fit her internal organs. (laughs) Her neck is too long to be able to lift her head. Her wrists are too thin to be able to lift anything. The thinness of her legs and her small feet mean that she'd be unable to walk and the only way that she could move would be on all fours.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah,
1: like it's completely unrealistic and also like her
0: arms don't bend at the elbows and in the the legs straight as well
1: yeah there's no there's no (laughs) movement (laughs) and that even the new curvy barbie that's been released reinforces the same standards so she's three to four sizes smaller than the average woman Mm. so she's a size six to eight whereas the average is size 14 Mm. and then they've also started to release dolls that have occupations so barbie dolls with occupations except even in that she's still sexualized so like the baby dr barbie is specifically only for delivering babies and she wears tight pink glitter jeans with her lab coat Hmm. the vet barbie and dentist barbie both wear satin mini dresses under their lab coats specialize
0: in obstetrician obstetrics like you're not going to go off and do dermatology like you said she only delivers babies
1: Yeah, but she's like baby doctor. She's not even like obstetrician or like do you think think a three year
0: old can say obstetrician? Yes. (laughs) Okay.
1: Well they've got veterinarian Barbie. But so the vet and the dentist Barbie are wearing satin mini dresses under their white coats. Like hmm. But
0: they're still wearing a white coat though, right?
1: Yeah, 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 sure that'll be enough. I'll tell you why it's not in the minute. So they had 37 girls aged four to seven years and yeah. then one of their parents. They were assigned to, randomly assigned to one of three conditions. So playing with baby Dr. Barbie, the original kind of fashion Barbie who's wearing a sort of low cut evening dress or Mrs. Potato Head. And they had free play with the toy for five minutes with a female experimenter present and then the parent watching from behind a one way mirror. After playing, they were shown a set of images of workplaces. And so they didn't have any people in them. It was just sort of like the setup of an office or of a classroom or things like that. Um, There was one control, one of sort of like practice question. And then five male dominated, five female dominated. And they were told one sentence describing the photo and a label for the kind of work so for example this is a fire station where a firefighter works mm. after each picture they were asked in random order could you do this job when you grow up could a boy do this job when he grew up
0: so was it could you do a job or could a girl do a job
1: could you do this job so it was about their own internalized capability mm. yeah so could you do this job when you grow up could a boy do this job when he grows up? Parents did demographic questionnaire and then there was debriefing at the end, which I thought was quite cute that one part of it was giving the little girls a pamphlet that listed all sorts of different careers that women could do when they grew up. Good. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the results showed that Almost 60% owned at least one Barbie. And on average, the girls had 3.89 Barbies each. There was no significant... And, and
0: that 0.89 is not actually like a... Um, it's an, not like it's a headless Barbie. No, it's not like an average. It is like a headless Barbie. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. So.
1: <laughs> With matted hair and yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: there was no significant between type of Barbie doll in any of the measures. So yeah. the whether it was dressed as a doctor or not, same same effect, Mm -hmm. so combined into one. There was a significant effect of gender. So girls said that boys had significantly more career options than they did, Mm -hmm. and they endorsed more female-dominated occupations for themselves than male-dominated occupations. Mm -hmm. They found that there were a bigger there, there was a bigger gap between girls' occupations for themselves versus expectations for boys in male-dominated careers than female-dominated. So they thought that boys were more able to do female-dominated careers, but the girls, the yeah. reverse, didn't apply. And that playing with Barbie was related to significantly fewer job options for girls than boys. There was little difference between genders for those playing with Mrs. Potato Head.
0: Right. Yeah. So the first set of that results, though. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of that's true. Like it is. There are less options. And for women, and that. But it's interesting that they're like picking
1: crossover? it up. It's interesting that they're picking it up from early childhood, like yeah. so from what, preschool at to what, at what grade age one, these? four yeah. to seven. Right. So they're pretty, picking it up pretty early. I mean, I wonder
0: whether that it, it gets back to like children's books. Hmm. More so than the dolls. I mean, I think doll, it sounds like doll fact has a big, big thing.
1: Yeah, because it was quite, when they played with Mrs. Potato Head, that disparity didn't show up. So they did wonder as well whether because, you know, three quarters of them owned a Barbie and had multiple, they'd already kind of been primed to the effect of, of Barbie as well. Yeah interesting
0: well i mean it's, it's really really interesting having a child of like each gender yeah and we've only got one one or two barbie doll like things that we yeah. given like i certainly didn't buy them yeah and they're like fairies yeah Daughter loves them yeah so like it's really it's like it's really really fascinating to kind of watch that yeah and so,
1: see how that plays out yeah. yeah yeah
0: i mean i don't know what goes on it the uh, child care center. But. Yeah. So there you go. So so take, so, so take away.
1: So take away is providing a range of different toys for your daughter will, will help to boost the amount of career options that she thinks that okay. she will have. And it, they spoke a little bit, about as well that they kind of girls playing, being given toys that were nurturing. So things like baby dolls or things that involved caring for other people That's earlier on like as well. Gender-all. Yeah, gender role kind of stuff. Before then it moves more into the sexualized stuff. So it's finding some way to introduce some variety in there. I
0: mean, Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd love to know like the difference between girls who have an older brother versus the girls who don't
1: yeah um, I don't know like, i th- I reckon it would be the same as your sibling one in terms of the type of relationship like yeah and and how those gender roles were reinforced in the yeah. family like yeah.
0: the closeness of the relationship between yeah the the same and opposite sex parent yeah and because I certainly know with doctors that there's a disproportionate amount of firstborn children who are doctors who have parents who are doctors mm. So, like, so there is like a role modelling thing
1: from the parents, yeah, yeah from
0: the role model, and like, and you would wonder whether, uh particularly, like whether that has a role in career. Oh, it would have stuff to as well, yeah. So
1: it'd have to come from all different. All I different mean, I, I
0: sit but... there with I sit there with my daughter. Like, there is you know, there is some songs. There is a song about cheeky monkeys jumping yeah. on the bed. Yeah, they take the doc, they take them to the doctor, and I always add in. And the doctor, she said, yeah, like as a way of kind of trying to imprint yep. that women can be doctors and all that kind of yep. stuff so
1: yeah but there you go I, I found it slightly well it wasn't unexpected but it was slightly depressing <laughs> as are many things in psychology <laughs> <laughs> so uh look let's, uh,
0: let's lighten it up let's lighten it up <laughs> um you own a cat
1: i do own a cat
0: can you uh, describe your cat
1: She's weird. She's weird. You mean physically or personality, or uh, uh,
0: well, b- both? Actually,
1: both. Uh, she's a Russian blue.
0: Yep.
1: So she's a grey, grey cat. She's quite clumsy. Uh, she doesn't really know how to be a cat. Yeah. You know. Only just learned how to purr a couple of years ago. She's seven. Yeah. You know she's and got some issues. Cleo.
0: Cleo. Okay. okay. So clumsy. Doesn't yeah. know how to be a cat. Yeah. Bit weird. Bit weird. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So this,
1: <laughs> this is going to be about me, isn't it?
0: <laughs> no, no, it's not about you. It's about her. Oh. So this is an Australian study yeah. from Pauline Bennett et al. Mm-hmm. From La Trobe University here in Melbourne. And it's published in Behavioral Processes in 2017. And it's assessment of domestic cat personality as perceived by 416 owners. It suggests six dimensions.
1: Nice. Also, they have more dimensions than dogs.
0: I say I don't know dogs.
1: Well, I saw some research a while ago that it was, it used the big five. Yeah. And they found that, like, consistent ratings on agreeableness, extroversion, and neuroticism. Yeah, right. Yeah, but the other two didn't apply to dogs.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) 29% of Australian homes own a cat. Huh. Most families perceive their cat as a family member. Mm-hmm. And the authors, if you think your paper was depressing, they discuss cat abandonment. Yeah. 52,804 cats were received by the RSPCA yeah. in 2014 2015. Yeah.
1: That's why Cleo was adopted.
0: So they discuss that cat personality is a significant influence on cat behaviour towards humans. Mm-hmm. And misunderstanding of natural cat behaviour may lead to behavioural problems and cat abandonment. Mm. So let's research cat personality. <laughs> Apparently personality is being researched in dogs. Yeah. Cats. Hyenas. Hyenas. Chimpanzees. And my personal favourite octopuses. No. Felineality TM assessment is a behavioral assessment that mm-hmm. has been used to match shelter cats with potential homes. Mm-hmm. That's a behavioral thing. It's, cat personnel has also been assessed with surveys, mm-hmm. which they seem to be more reliable than behavioral observations and less subjective than often assumed.
2: Mm.
0: Previous research is a lack of theoretical coherence and lack of consensus. So several per- personality dimensions. So one came up with a. Three, three factor, mm-hmm. sociable, curious, and dominant. Mm-hmm. Another was dominance, impulsiveness, and neuroticism. Mm-hmm. Five factor. One was openness, quietness, affiliation, activity, and anthro affiliation.
1: Hmm.
0: I don't know what that means. Anyway. So <laughs> Affiliation they,
1: with other animals?
0: Oh, I don't know. So two studies. Study one, two focus groups. So <laughs> first focus group. I love this one. Six specialist participants, veterinary behaviorists, Mm -hmm. psychologists, specialized human-animal interactions, four postgraduate psych students working in anthrozoology, Mm -hmm. two in human-cat relationships, and one working in dog personality. (laughs) And then the second focus group was five people familiar with cats, but not highly educated in this kind of sense. They they listed them off. I'm not going to go through it. So these... Focus groups, 60 to 90 minutes discussing cat personality. (laughs) You would love this. Um, There was a list of over 200 possible adjectives to describe feline personality. Mm -hmm. And they got them to look at this list, commented on those that were inappropriate, redundant, and they could add more. And so statistically, they knew the sample size that they wanted to get for the second study. And so they wanted to reduce it to 80 to 100 words for stats reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. They got it down to 118. <laughs> quote, it proved challenging, end quote, to <laughs> reduce it more. Sure. So uh, I thought that was great. Yep. Study two, online survey, cat owners from online cat forums. Do you uh, own a cat forum, No, Amy? I'm not. No? Cat chat group? No. Oh, okay. Well, okay. No. And also first... first
1: I'm very, you know, focused on my cat you don't need rather to. than cats in general.
0: Yeah. So people had to rate one cat... Or if they had multiple cats, the cat that they knew the best. <laughs> That's great. They rated satisfaction with the cat as pet, attachment to the cat, closeness to the cat, extent to which the cat was troublesome. Hmm. They presented 8- eight hundred eighteen words and so sort of rated from one describe, does not describe my cat to five really does describe my cat. Results? Uh-huh. 416 valid responses. 40.9% had owned at least five cats in their lifetime. Hmm. Some, some more stats. So the age range was... Amy's just now counting <laughs> Three, four, five, six. There you go, 6 There you go, 6 So <laughs> Some more stats, age range was 1 to 30 years mm-hmm. So there was 4 very old cats yeah. Which I thought was really cute So it they removed is. the analysis from, from the age analysis And the range went from 1 to 19 Which mm-hmm. is a bit, was a bit uh, More contained 2 thirds were mixed breed and Pure breeds Siamese and Persian were the most popular. Mm-hmm. There were some other kind of cat things. I got a little lost. <laughs> I'm a dog person, anyway. Yeah. They reduced the number of words by looking into color. Okay. So stats alert. Mm-hmm. Tune out if you're not. I, I found the stats section really, really great because yeah. I've done a I did a, a principal components analysis for my doctorate. Right. And so like it was like oh yes I actually understand <laughs> all this. This is awesome. <laughs> so they reduced the number of words by looking at intercorrelations, and then they did a principal components analysis, mm-hmm. like a factor analysis, similar to factor analysis. And actually, they did multiple. Mm. And seriously, if you are a stats nerd, read this paper. It's yeah. great. It's great. really, really interesting. They got it down to, reduced it statistically down to 29 items mm-hmm. and six subscales mm-hmm. or components.
1: And Am they, I going to do this questionnaire? Is that where we're leading? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, they explained that. So, the, so these six subscales explain 56% of the variance, mm. So which is pretty good. Yeah. So you want to know the dimensions? Mm-hmm. Okay. So playfulness. Yep. So items like energetic, playful, quick, mischievous, or curious. Mm-hmm. So they seem to think that was similar to other research that labelled a dimension called active, mm-hmm. and similar to extroversion in humans, also seen in dogs and chimps.
2: Mm, nice.
0: Nervousness seen in other animals and similar to neuroticism in humans and hyenas. Mm. And so the words for nervous were, nervousness was nervous, timid, apprehensive, cautious, and confident. Yeah. Amiability, which is similar to agreeableness, or similar to sociable, in other research of cats, and has been found to be associated with high adoption rates from cat shelters. Hmm. And so that's like warm, peaceful, charming, and faithful. Hmm. Dominance was the fourth. Uh, <laughs> so words like proud, domineering, serious, <laughs> independent, and territorial. <laughs> And that's been found in other research. Demandingness is like persistent, demanding, needy, persevering, and loud. Mm -hmm. So, they suggest that this trait could be adaptive in modern times for cats. Mm. They would receive more resources and attention from humans. Or it could be disagreeable to some owners, right? So, potentially, it's a helpful thing for matching cats. And gullibility. So, it's like clumsy, foolish, (laughs) gullible, and confused. It suggests it might be opposite to the dimension of intellect in humans. (laughs) Or... They say, interestingly, like, they like, could be a function of incorrect perception of cats to be clumsy or foolish and gullible, a la funny cat videos, yep. but which actually may be an anthropomorphic projection. Yep. Yeah. All right. Mm. So, and that's that word that you talked about in one of the other pods. Yeah. So some correlations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so playfulness and demandiness were correlated. Yeah. Nervousness and gullibility and demandingness and gullibility were both correlated Hmm. as well they found that playfulness was negatively correlated with cat's age Mm -hmm. so which kind of makes sense yeah they Uh, get more sedentary yep (laughs) (laughs) amiability was positively correlated with owner satisfaction bond quality attachment and negatively related to how troublesome the cat was viewed Hmm. troublesome cats were viewed higher on demandingness or gullibility (laughs) and they suggested that this kind of research could be helpful in helping cats be rehomed successfully.
1: Nice, I like it.
0: So there you go. So the survey, if you're looking online, is the Domestic Cat Personality Inventory. Excellent. And the uh, authors included it in an appendix. And in the break, Amy is going to do it. Yes. <laughs> <And> we're <laughs> going to hear about Claire's personality.
1: <laughs> See you soon.
0: Yeah, you're on two strings, Bye.
1: Experimental observation or any other kind of observation
0: on scientific things. It's so let, let's make this quick.
1: Okay, some five t- things.
0: Five things. Really well, actually, six. You listen to Tissue Spot.
1: Thank you for listening. Well,
0: thank you for listening. You, This is about a show where we say thank you. And you can follow us on Twitter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We only got a small number of followers, so it'd be great if someone could. Look.
1: And we will post some interesting stuff. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. If you follow us, (laughs) which way does that go? I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure it out.
0: Tweet tweet us, that kind of stuff. You can also look at our website. The reason you might want to look at our website is that we have all the links to the articles that we post or talk about each week. Mm -hmm. And you can also look at the article links on the podcast description if you're interested. You
1: can also email us and say lovely things or mean things in private.
0: Yeah, it's a two shrinks pod at gmail But yeah, we're happy for feedback, that kind of stuff, ideas, ideas, suggestions,
1: burning questions. Burning questions. You, you know, you may want us to do a podcast entirely on cats, cats. or dogs versus dogs. cats.
0: Yes, I think we might actually do that. Uh, was it Have we done enough Things?
1: No, we haven't said anything about rating us or writing nice comments in public. Yes, on you can
0: iTunes. Do, Although uh, a friend of mine, she was wanting to do that. And she got, gave me the phone to say, she's like, I can't find where it is. I'm like, oh, I know where it is. Oh, I couldn't find it. You I've, I've to... been at university a long time. <laughs> like, like, a lot of years. I found it. Yeah. I found, I can find it on my phone, but not on others. Anyway.
1: You have to not be in in the podcast app, not where each individual episode is listed. You have to go to sort of like search for the show. Yeah, right. And then you score it on the show page, but not on from an individual episode.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Contact it- us for tech support. That's <laughs> <laughs> at at gmail.com. Yeah. We'll just send up some kind of smoke signal somewhere across Melbourne and we'll be fine.
1: That would work. That's right. Yeah.
0: Should we find out about cat personality? Absolutely. And cheers. Cheers. Cheers for and Jean. It's a very hot night here in Melbourne. It's November. It's, it's very hot.
1: Yep. It's not looking good for summer. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Cleo's personality. <laughs> Give it to me. Should we go from like the highest to the lowest? Yeah, it's
0: go highest to lowest. Yeah. Yep.
1: So she was highest on amiability. Yep. Yep. With four out of five.
0: So amiability is...
1: Is sort of friendly, sociable, warm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that was followed by demandingness. Yep. Which is a 3.8 out yep. of five. Uh, so that was.
0: So she's warm and needy. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: Followed by playfulness, mm-hmm. three point six.
0: Mm, she says she's seven. Yes, middle ground. Yeah. So she's kind of a bit, a bit, probably a bit above. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So she does a bit of playing, but then you know she also likes a nap. She loves a nap. So you know, somewhere in the middle there. And then gullibility. <laughs> she was 3.25 yeah so again around the middle i realized when i actually was you know answering the questions that she like she's clumsy but she's not necessarily the other things on there like i wouldn't necessarily describe her as gullible like yeah. it's more that her motor coordination is a bit off yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. which i put down to her being abandoned as a baby
0: mm, mm. poor attachment yeah. No, no uh, older prosocial siblings. Exactly. Show her how to do things. Yeah,
1: she be? was dumped when she still had her eyes shut. Oh, darling. I know. <laughs> uh, and then, two point six for nervousness. Yeah. Which, had I scored that before I moved house a couple of years ago, it would have been a lot higher. But mm. she's really happy in an apartment, so good on her. And two point four for dominance. So she's she's reasonably low in. In dominance. <laughs> it's more neediness than dominance. Warm and needy. Warm and needy. And a bit playful. I'm a bit playful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. There you go. Capusally okay, done.
1: Yep. Cleo unlocked. <laughs> I'll have to play it for her when I get home. Get some, you know, interrated reliability going. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put the numbers on on the floor in different and get her to stand on which one represents her the most.
0: Okay. You you weren't sounding like a crazy cat lady before, <laughs> and now you are. We'll cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) Next one.
1: So, do you think you can dance?
0: Uh, I think I can dance a bit.
1: Yeah. The next article I found is why we think we can't dance. Mm -hmm. Theory of mind and children's desire to perform in Child Development 2015 by Chaplin and Norton. So, they question why it is that we go from openly performing particularly for adults and things like yep. that in early childhood, singing, dancing, you know, plays, stuff like that, to avoiding it wherever we can. They question whether it's due to an increased awareness of other people's perception of them. Mm-hmm. So we start to develop a theory of mind, which is sort of being able to perceive that other people have perceptions different from our own, that, you know, other people might be thinking things about us or feeling things that are well, a it's, different, the difference.
0: It so. reminds that classic thing where that person over there can think things about you or about the world, and that's yeah. and classically that's what's thought to be lacking in people with autism. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and so it that's tends why to
0: have, in autistic people have some of the problems that they run into.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it tends to develop around from four onwards, and has yeah. sort of a sharp increase at five or six, and then you know sort of refines through school age, and a classic one way you can sort of tell where a kid has shifted is sort of you know if you're talking to a kid on the phone and you're not on you know facetime or whatever and they say look at this is a classic thing of a kid who doesn't have theory of mind because they assume that you can see what they can see yeah, like yeah it's yeah. sort of that yeah they don't think to describe something or because they assume that you must be just seeing what they're saying. So it allows them to interpret other people's behaviour, to understand cultural meanings, and then to internalise social norms. So generally, it's it's been focused on as a pretty positive thing that sort of allows for social development. And like you said, when there's an issue with theory of mind, then it's really, social interaction it's tends really to be prob- off. Yeah,
0: it's really problematic.
1: Yeah, but... The flip side of it is that then you're also more aware of other people's criticism of you. And so they hypothesized that theory of mind would predict older children's willingness to participate in performance activity because of heightened sensitivity to criticism. Absolutely. So they had 159 children aged 3 to 12 that they interviewed individually. They completed a preference task where they had to choose to do two things in front of the experimenter. So they could sing a song, perform a dance, circle red shapes on a page or colour in a square, and they just had to choose any two. And then they did a theory of mind task that had a few different parts to it. And then they also completed a self-esteem scale. So the results showed that age was negatively related to choosing to sing or dance so, the percentage went from 75% at age 3 to 6% at age 12 for wow. singing. Yeah. Yep. And 50% at 3 to 12% at 12 for dancing. Those choosing the drawing tasks all reversed the other way. So, only a third of three-year-olds chose to do any drawing task, whereas 82% of 12-year-olds chose to do hmm. one of those tasks. And all of the 12-year-olds chose to do a colouring task as one of their tasks chosen.
0: Did they get to... Choose one task? Two. Two, yeah, right. Any
1: two out of the four. Yeah. So a third of the three-year-olds chose to both sing and dance. None of the 11 or 12-year-olds chose to do both. So there was a real difference between yeah, wow. as it increased. Yeah. And only 6.2% of the three and four-year-olds avoided both singing and dancing. So most of them had some kind of performance thing that they wanted to do.
0: Also, also I was going to say, you know, there's like motor skills that are less well-developed for younger kids, but it, it, you wouldn't expect it to be that disparate. No, you?
1: no, it's huge. Yeah. So age was positively related to theory of mind, yeah. as you'd expect. It was also negatively related to self-esteem. So the older kids, as you increase mm-hmm. in age, your self-esteem dropped. Yeah. And self-esteem was negatively related to theory of mind. So the more theory of mind she had, the less self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And then when they put it all into a range of different models, they found that age predicted theory of mind and then theory of mind could predict whether they performed or not. But it was a better predictor to go through self-esteem. So, theory of mind led to reduced self-esteem, which led to less likelihood of performance. Mm, mm-hmm. So, it's that kind of moderating factor that yep. stops us from moderating
0: breaking. Moderating or
1: mediating? Mediating. That stops us from breaking into song and dance. Yeah. Where if we go? Essentially, we think people are going to judge us.
0: Yeah, and that's true. And there's a, there's a great book called The Artist's Way. Mm-hmm. And if you're struggling to be creative, yeah, you know, like say, say if you feel like you've got a book that you've always wanted to write yeah. or, you know, you work in a creative industry or even like if you're suffering from writer's block and you're an academic, yeah. this is a really good book. One of the things they get you to do in it is called the morning pages, mm-hmm. right? Which is basically you write two pages, yep. A4, mm-hmm. no more, no less, yep. freehand,
1: mm-hmm. no instruction. Right. So right. just whatever comes to just mind. Just whatever
0: comes to mind. Yeah. Right. And you do that every single day. Mm-hmm. And that they have this like chapter about it. And they talk about that. It's about just disgorging the junk in your head and yeah. the self-criticism in your head. Mm.
1: And is it first thing in the morning? Is that why it's called? Morning, yeah, morning pages, yeah. Yeah. So as soon as you get up. Yeah. As soon as you get up.
0: Yeah. Right. So, and this idea that unlocks the, crea- like helps you, the, the, the central thesis is that we're all, we all have a creative element to yeah. us. But we prevent ourselves from doing mm. it and engaging yeah. it. And so, and they talk about with children, like the same thing that yeah. when they're younger, like so this example, they don't, they don't have this like a level of criticism that's been built up no. over time. No. And, and so if you kind of get rid of that.
1: Then they're freer to be able to
0: yeah. and so, do what they want to do. So dance and sing and, 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 and draw and do whatever Yeah. And so often the problem with people being creative or like not engaging in a creative pursuit, whatever that pursuit is, Mm. so that might be podcasting, that might be writing something, that might be painting, that might be, you know, singing, whatever it might be. And and I certainly know for me when I was doing my doctorate. Mm that I started doing the morning pages yeah. and that helped me basically break the back of that mm. that research project and helped to, like, clear out that stuff. Yeah. So it's
1: Interesting. Stuff. I don't know if you've seen those books. I don't know if it's... A, I think it's a series of books as well as... And there's one that's kind of all brought together where it's all different creative people and their general day. So it shows at what time they did mm. what things. And so it, it covers, you know, writers, artists everything yeah. and a lot of them start in sort of as soon as they get up in the morning or you know right at the end of the day in the middle of the night or something when they're on their own but mm. it's interesting to see those patterns I wonder if it's the same kind of thing that it's sort of like you get up before you have any contact with the with mm. the world
0: well I just watched just- this thing on or oh, the that came up on social media and it was like a little seven minute doco about Roald Dahl yeah and basically like he would the children's author he would go down to this shed mm. in the back of his garden and the, the the video of it was fantastic
2: yeah
0: i'll i'll see if i can tweet out the link to mm. it
1: yeah his little shed is so cute
0: and what was what was really interesting about it is that he it shows him in this room and he's got this like set up where he's like in this chair and he's got this like little bench that he would like he'd sit in his chair and then he put this sort of like pole type thing across his legs and mm. then set this bench on top of it with, it's got like kind of green felt. Yeah. And then he would have like paper, like he'd have six pencils and he had a little electric pencil sharpener that he like could sharpen without moving. And he had like a an ashtray yeah. and like, and like a thermos and like he was all set and he talked about it being a little nest. Yeah. Kind of like he would work for four hours. Yeah. No more or less. Yeah. But it was really, really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I was- love
1: hearing about all those kind of rituals and things like Val McDermott, the crime writer, she writes for, a block where essentially she doesn't see or speak to her partner or kids for however many months, like a few months a year, mm. where she just intensively writes all day, every day, writes an entire book, and then they've got her undivided attention for the rest of the year. Yeah. And it's this thing of just, yeah, yeah and, and that's, soul focus. And that's what works. Yeah. 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 And interesting.
0: That, and I mean, I imagine for some other people, it's, it's you know, like, it, like they can't do that at all. No but I think I'm probably more in the soul focus. Yeah. Kind of yeah.
1: Thing. Absolutely. All right. Where to next?
0: So let's go. So continuing on the literary theme, are mm-hmm. uh, you a Lord of the Rings fan?
1: Uh, well, it's I have a conflictual relationship with Lord of the Rings. Talk to me. And so in undergrad of uni, I did a like, fantasy literature class and we had to read like the the main book, plus then there was you yeah, six others or something. But the main one was the three Lord of the Rings, and it just was torture for me. As someone who loves people and wanting to know about their motivations, it's so focused on the scenery and describing walking and nothing about the characters. So I, I got halfway through the second one and asked permission to write my major essay on his letters, which were fascinating. <laughs> and so I did that instead. Quite enjoyed the movies, but, yeah, it's, my initial reaction is just sort of a tensing up. <laughs>
0: so on the walking thing, right? It's like, I think I played you that clip from Clerks 2 mm-hmm. where basically the lies like, oh, my God. Lord of the Rings. It's just three movies of walking. Yeah. Like, even the trees walk
1: in
2: that movie. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: yeah. It just, yeah, it felt really sort of self-indulgent.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I enjoyed the movies, like, at the time. I'm not sure that... I should rewatch really watch them. But mm. when all those new Hobbit ones came out, anyway.
1: But I the Hobbit ones, I think, uh, the Hobbit is different because it is more about... The people and they're shorter and they're kind of they've got a different feel to them, whereas
0: I had no interest. The trilogy tril-
1: really just it's it could have it could have gone on forever with no restriction. Is it, yeah, it what did it feel feels like. like. Do you
0: feel like Monkey Magic, where right? you know where they mm. like like, like yeah. moving, walking all yeah. the time, yeah. and really like at the end of like like the final Lord of the Rings like, they fly into Mordor and, like, it's like, why didn't you, why didn't just, you just... Why didn't you just do that to start <laughs> with? Anyway. Oh, so the only <laughs> other
1: thing I will say is that his letters are really worth reading Yeah. because, apart from anything else, he had what well, a bunch of different authors have, which I find interesting, where they view their characters as people who exist. Mm. So he'd say, I, I decided this morning to walk into the pub and see what Legolas was up to. Yeah. Rather than... I was thinking about what Legolas would do next. Yeah, Which is fascinating. Anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the article we're going to go for mm-hmm. is... So, I want you to put your clinical hat firmly on. It's on. So, this is Taking a Leaf Out of an Old Book, A Precious Case from Middle Earth. This is okay. Nadia Bashir et al. BMJ 2004 Christmas Edition. Mm-hmm. Let's diagnose Gollum. Okay. Smeagol is a... 587-year-old hobbit, like Matt, of no fixed abode. (laughs) He presents with antisocial behavior, aggression, preoccupation with the ring. He comes from a wealthy... (laughs) Comes from a wealthy, influential family. Nothing is known about his schooling. He's spiteful to others and only one friend, Diago.
1: And he's almost nude most of the time.
0: Yeah, well, and, and... well, Diago or Gollum? Gollum. We're we'll not up to his appearance, behaviour. Oh, yeah, sorry. We're That's doing right. like the Sorry, thing. yeah, we're, and we're, then we're you're following going the MSA. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah right. So, only one friend who was Smeagol murdered for the ring. he mm-hmm. was banished by his family for being a thief and, mur- and murderer. <laughs> he lived for many years with the ring as his only friend, and mm-hmm. began to detest the outside world, loathing the sun, moon, and wind. Mm. Uh, so, he created Gollum the Outsider, who had a more violent personality. Developed obsessional thoughts and tendency towards violence uh, after the ring was stolen by Bilbo Baggins. Mm-hmm. So, which I thought it was interesting because well, like, in the movies, Bilbo just sort of finds that. Yeah. But like... Oh, I suppose
1: stolen. from his perspective, it would be stolen.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Forensic history, murder of Diego and attempted murder of Samwise Ganji. Mm-hmm. He did smoke pipe weed in adolescence, but no other history of substance use. That we know of, yeah. That we well, no, the problems mm, no, yeah. <laughs> uh Not much knowledge of his pre-morbid personality, except that he was an inquisitive child with odd interests, and he liked causing mischief and like solitary activities such as burrowing under trees to look at roots. So that's men- mental state. <laughs> as we all do. <laughs> so, that's so that's kind of you know the presenting kind of thing. So mental state examination. So if you're not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, this is kind of how we break down. It's
1: kind of awful. Well, it's kind of. I'm like but, it's it's really useful, but mm, it but sometimes you read them and it feels really I don't know harsh isn't the right pejorative. word. Pejorative. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So basically, this is like appearance and behavior, speech, cognition, cognition, thought, thought form, thought yeah. content, perception, uh, perception, so insight, insight, emotion, emotion, uh, mood and effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, Hopefully, I haven't forgotten anything. God. So, middle state examination. He's a pale, (laughs) emaciated hobbit with limited hair and big eyes. He's unkempt and, like you said, wearing uh, barely a a loincloth. Yeah. He has animal-like behavior, crawling and hopping. Mm Mm-hmm. He's got no evidence of clinical depression, but he is emotionally labile, becoming jittery nervous when discussing the ring, and subjectively he feels sad and anxious to be with the ring. Mm-hmm. Speech abnormal, repeats phrases and noises. Mm-hmm. Represions. Yes. It, n- thoughts not disordered, but neologisms, mm-hmm. such as Trixie and Hobbitses. Yeah. I had to look up what neologisms was. Mm-hmm. Thought content. He has nihilistic thoughts, believes he's a murderer. Little guilt, preoccupied with the ring, so has obsessive com- thoughts but no compulsions. Yep. But, in brackets, would do anything for the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is hostile to Frodo and <laughs> does have paranoid ideation about Sauron and Samwise. Mm-hmm. Does have difficulty controlling thoughts and actions when in contact with the ring. So that would be the, the risk. Impulsive element. risk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, kind of thing. And does have features of dissociation. There's Gollum and there's Smeagol. Mm-hmm. Poor insight, but aware of his. Aware of this separation. Yep. Cognitively seems to be okay. hmm So differential diagnosis?
1: Well, I feel like there's kind of a cluster that's around sort of personality disorder. hmm You know, antisocial personality disorder or something in that.
2: Antisocial, yeah, right.
1: Given the aggression, anger, mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of side of things. There's also then the cluster about kind of the dissociative identity mm-hmm. kind of feel. Yeah. That these two people once. Yep. There's in the kind of OCD cluster of he's got those obsessions. You don't need both obsessions and compulsions.
2: Mm. So he could meet the criteria
1: for that. And, you know, I sort of, I feel like that there are multiple elements that you could draw on. Mm. You could almost go for sort of like the, the one that was left out of kind of like the, you know, developmental attachment stuff. Like he's on his own, he's isolated, yeah, he's got nothing. Yeah, maybe. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, he's he's a mixed bag. Mm. I, I'd want to sit down with him and really kind of, you know, talk about what the ring means. Like, they really kind of explore that. Mm. Even like his day to Because
0: I thought it was interesting that he seems to be okay, but I don't know. I thought he's he was pretty bit, fixated. I thought he was pretty fixed and bit, yeah. pretty, pretty concrete. Yeah. I mean, but he this- could.
1: What if he was delusional and all of it? is just a delusion and there's no ring and there's no kind of but then
0: but then but cognitively but then also at the same time like he knew his way around mm. like you know so he had this like kind con- of complex thing but mm. like this limited he's kind of a complex case so i mean so so in this paper they did talk about differential diagnosis mm-hmm. talked about medically first yeah which i thought was, was great
1: yeah uh
0: diet is mm-hmm. raw food. And so he might be having a vitamin B12 deficiency because that can cause... He's
1: very, yeah. yeah he's irri- in the dark a lot.
0: Yeah. Irritable. And he's very... Delu- oh, just hold that thought mm-hmm. for a second. Irritable, like a delusions, and paranoia. You've got low appetite, weight loss, weight and hair loss, which also suggests iron deficiency. Yeah hyperthyroidism yeah. suggested by bulging eyes weight loss hypervigilant and not needing much sleep mm-hmm. his photosensitivity so dislike of sunlight could be associated with porphyria which is accumulation of porphyrins which are a precursor to an essential constituent of hemoglobin huh. yeah so an attacks of this may be induced by starvation and accompanied by paranoid psychosis mm. so so i mean with like any kind of psych stuff, you always want to try and rule out something medical going on first. Or substance. Yeah, or substance, yeah. Or substance. yeah. yeah. It's incredibly disappointing when you go, oh, you know, our therapy's going really well. And they go, oh, yeah, actually, my GP, like, upped my, um, oh, gave me, a, like, an iron transfusion last yeah. week. And you're like, so that's why you're so that's better, is it? Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> it's yep. not my, my complicated four-page <laughs> formulation. <laughs> so that's what these authors suggested initially. And then they asked 30 med students if they thought Gollum had... If they thought he had a mental illness, mm. 25, so med students, 25% twenty-five said he had schizophrenia, mm. which I mean, on the face of it, and they say this too, reasonable diagnosis, but I don't know. it like doesn't a, feel right. No, it doesn't feel right because they sort of said, point out straight up is that in Middle Earth, the power of the ring is a reality. Mm. It's not a false, unshakable belief that's not in keeping with the culture. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which is Everyone's into it. Right? Like, everyone knows it, right? Yeah. And the symptoms that he experiences uh, caused by the ring are also experienced by other ring bearers.
1: So, is it like a substance induced thing well, by the ring?
0: That's kind of what I started to think about because my history of addiction mm. stuff. Like, I thought, well, you know, the ring. Like, anyway, three of them said multiple personality disorder, which is now named dissociative identity disorder.
1: Mm. It's not enough personalities, though, to kind of. And there's not. A, He's got a lot of awareness, like you wouldn't expect that in the early kind of...
0: Yeah, so I mean, they sort of say that, you know, there's two personalities go on the They and these authors rule it out by saying in the ICD-10 diagnostic criteria, this is 2004, that one personality is always suppressed by the other, and they're always unaware of each other's existence.
1: Yeah, unless you're in treatment, and then you start to kind of bring them to a similar... Like, you start to communicate between them, but... Yeah, so... He's not in treatment,
0: Well, is he? I don't know. He's forming a close attachment with somebody. Isn't that treatment enough?
1: No, not for for dissociative identity disorder.
0: Anyway, so they're saying that one person is suppressed by... Hang on,
1: were you counting the ring as someone?
0: Well, the ring wants to be found.
1: (laughs) Okay, continue.
0: <laughs> no, I was actually thinking of Frodo. Okay. So, they were saying that the personalities in the dissociative identity disorder are always unaware of others' existence. Yeah. Which was not what's happening in the movie. But I went and back and looked at the. I went and looked at the DSM five. Yeah. The most current version, and that doesn't actually say that in the no. criteria. No. So, personally, I would be thinking that if you could rule out the biological medical Mm. stuff, which I think actually you would really need to do. Yeah. Then I would be prime. It's got Prime candidate would be Mm. that.
1: I have some resources for you if you want to go through the movie and just really check it out.
0: (laughs) But they interestingly say, which is what you said, which was that he does have a schizoid personality disorder. Yeah. Right. And so I wasn't fully across schizoid. It's been a while since I looked at that. So... It's a pervasive pattern of detachment from social relationships and a restricted range of expression of emotions in interpersonal settings, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. You need to have four of the following. Neither desires nor enjoys close relationships, including being part of a family. That's that's probably true. Always, always chooses solitary activities, maybe. Has little or if any interest in having sexual experiences with another person. That's unclear. Takes... Pleasure in few or if any activities. Mm-hmm. Lacks close friends or confidence other than first degree relatives. So that's true. So that's maybe two. Yeah. Appears indifferent to the praise or criticism of others. I can't remember the movie well enough to know that. And it shows emotional coldness, detachment or flattened activity. Hmm. I don't reckon he
1: does. He's no, he's a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's got a bit of that kind of, for one of a better term, weirdness. <laughs> Yeah, oddness. About it, oddness. What we would call that, clinically odd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you kind of see. But it's not... I don't feel like it's enough to say definitively this is his diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you could I have... I want more you, time with him. You could have schizoid and... You, schizoid personality disorder doesn't rule out multiple personality no, disorder. No, But, like, I don't know. Like, the thing that I did think I thought about schizoid is that it, it, there's that that restricted range of expression of emotions, he mm. doesn't have that. He's no, it's
1: his. almost a manic kind of feel where it swings from one to the other.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So then that's kind of... So I personally, I'd be leaning towards... I'd be looking at medical... Yeah. Medical review. Get D.I.D. Get a good med reg on to it and then rule that out and then maybe multiple personality, maybe mm. with schizoid trace.
1: Yeah. Yeah, nice. Done. Done. Golem solved. <laughs>
0: Golem solved. Where are we going?
1: We are going to... Swearing. swearing. Yeah. So, have you heard that swearing alleviates pain?
0: No, I've not. I, like, officially? No, yeah. I know that.
1: Yeah. So, the article that we're going to is Hurt Feelings and Four-Letter Words, Swearing Alleviates the Pain of Social Distress, by Philip and Lombardo in the European Journal of Social Psychology like, this year.
0: Oh, no, I was going to say Zimbardo, then no, it's Lombardo. It's
1: no. No, but I immediately thought that as well. So there's a parallel between social and physical pain that researchers hypothesize because social attachment is so central to our survival that we have a sort of biological response to rejection, exclusion, that sort of thing. Yeah. Because, you know, as kids or growing up, it could mean life or death. So we often describe things like a broken heart or something like that that's kind of got a physical element to it when we're talking about social Mm -hmm. yeah and so that these kind of aversive social situations often feel painful so there's a pain overlap theory that suggests that because there's an overlap between physical and social pain that then the strategies that work for physical pain should work for social pain Mm -hmm. and that often that occurs so there's research showing that taking pain relievers like ibuprofen or paracetamol can reduce social pain Mm And that social support can reduce physical pain. Mm-hmm. And then also, we know that physical pain is worse when we're distressed or when there's a sort of social disconnection.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a whole pain gate theory, but I won't go into that. Yeah. But that talks about how your mood can moderate
1: how the pain is transmitted. Yeah. So if yeah. you're in
0: a bad mood, then you feel more pain. Yeah. If you're in a good mood, you feel less pain.
1: Yeah. So there's this kind of interlink yeah it's not as simple as you hurt yourself and then you feel pain yep. there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in between so swearing has been shown to help cope with physical pain and there's some, been some other research that shows that it might be moderated by how frequently you swear during day-to-day life so whether you just
0: so if you swear
1: more often it might have less effect than if you're a sort of infrequent yeah, swearer, right. yeah, yeah. but then you hurt yourself and yep. yeah yeah But what it seems to impact is your threshold and sort of tolerance for pain. So how long you can stay in a painful situation rather than your sensitivity to it. So you still feel it at the same level, but you put up with it for longer Mm -hmm. if you swear. So the idea was to explore the impact of swearing on two parts of social distress. So social pain and increased sensitivity to physical pain that both seem to occur at once. Right. Yeah. With me so far.
0: I'm fascinated to see how they do this.
1: Yeah, so there's 62 undergrad students they used as Good. yeah, and it was the classic, you know, you get course credit or cash mm. for your participation. So they reported their daily swearing frequency on a Likert scale from never to more than 20 times a day. So it was like one to six. It
0: depends if my kids are in charge.
1: Is it high or low <laughs> when they're in? No comment. <laughs> They then completed a word generation task. So they had to list five words to describe a chair and five words they might use if they hit their hand with a hammer. So the first single syllable non-swear word on the chair list was used as a non-swear word, like a control word. Mm -hmm. Most commonly that was flat and hard. The first single syllable swear word on the hammer list was used as a swear word. So most common was shit and fuck. Yep. Which is the first journal article that I've read that's had that just written, you know, I quite enjoyed. Anyway. (laughs) So they then completed an autobiographical writing task about either a time that they felt included and accepted, or if they're in the other condition, a time that they felt rejected and excluded. And so they wrote for a couple of minutes and then kind of had a prompt of, you can move on. And if they were still writing at six minutes, then they were kind of moved on from that activity. Then they were randomly assigned to either the swear or the non-swear condition. So they repeated their chosen word, Mm -hmm. out loud for two minutes as they held their hand in room temperature water, which served as a sort of control Control. for what was coming up later. They then completed a mood index and need satisfaction scale.
0: Seems overly complicated. Yeah.
1: A social pain scale of how painful writing the autobiographical memory was. Mm -hmm. And then they completed the pain task, which was a cold presser task, which involved holding your hand in cold water until you feel pain. And whilst doing so, they had to say a nonsense word, "dop," out loud to prevent internal swearing or swearing otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Then they rated their pain on a scale. Mm-hmm. Yep. And were debriefed about the you know process. Mm-hmm. Results. So they found a significant difference in mood. So it was lower. Hang prof- on,
0: so did they get them to swear? When they were
1: so the swearing the was, no, so not while they were in the cold, they swore after they wrote the paragraph about feeling included or excluded.
0: So why did they put their hands in the cold water?
1: To then rate their pain and how long they were able to last in the pain. Right. Yeah. So they timed. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So mood was lower for those in the group that wrote about feeling excluded rather than included. Yeah. And there was a significant difference in need satisfaction, which was lower for those excluded than included. So the need satisfaction was how much your needs are met. So they didn't feel as met after completing the task about feeling excluded. excluded. Makes sense. The excluded participants rated the social pain as significantly higher than included yep. participants and the swearing attenuated the social pain in excluded participants. And it was a large effect size. It was 0.76. Oh, wow. That's huge. It was huge. Yeah. But the physical pain threshold wasn't impacted by social distress and the physical pain sensitivity wasn't impacted by swearing. So it didn't seem to have a physical element. It was about the social pain mm. that had an impact. So there was a interaction effect where Physical pain sensitivity was lower for excluded swearers than excluded non-swearers. If you wrote about an excluded time you felt excluded and then you did the pain task, you had a higher sensitivity to pain. You rated it as it yeah, more yeah. intense if you didn't swear yeah. than if you did. Yeah. And again, that was a large effect,
0: 0.93. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So excluded and, and in, swearing and was, swearing pain was better. Than than excluded excluded non-swearing
1: pain. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So, and it seemed to be that the sort of, you know, how often you swear element of it didn't impact the social pain, but it did impact the physical the physical pain. So people who swore less often and then swore after being excluded had a higher pain threshold than those who didn't swear as often mm-hmm. so essentially if you want to have a higher pain threshold and you want to deal with these kind of things more you don't swear during your day-to-day life yeah and then when it happens you go nuts
0: yeah but then yeah. but like if you're socially having problems it doesn't matter how much you swear just make sure you do
1: it yeah exactly yeah okay. yeah. yeah it'll help you feel better just right. repeating it again and again
0: <laughs> <laughs> i love that i love the um preventing internal swearing
1: yeah (laughs) yeah me too i got to that and i went yeah that's that's a proper like control there because i reckon i would be if i had my hand and i wasn't talking out loud i reckon internally i'd be thinking it
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: it
1: i loved it yeah anyway
0: there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, so, the article I'm going to go for is Sleep Positions of Couples at Sleep Onset, uh-huh. a Questionnaire Study, and it's by Irene Junker and colleagues, Heidelberg University in Germany. Okay. It's published in 2016, which is the international in the International Journal of Dream Research. Uh-huh. So, it kind of got me thinking about this topic because of like children co-sleeping children wanting to come into your bed and co-sleep. Sure. And it kind of got me reflecting on, like, I don't really like people touching me, but I think actually maybe that has changed over time when I'm going to sleep, basically. A bit you, of a lone wolf.
1: So of. you become less, you like it less now than what you did earlier. I think so. I yeah. think so. And
0: anyway, it starts with a great review of when people started sleeping in beds, mm-hmm. like... I never thought of that as a concept. Because it
1: used to be sitting up, didn't
0: it? (laughs) No idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because the the beds used to be shorter and you'd sleep sitting up, like a 90 degree angle.
0: Oh, my God. So they said Hmm. ancient Egypt, the wealthy, which was sort of of the first beds, that, that was sort of the first known people to sleep in beds. And from the size of the beds, it was clear that they weren't shared. Ancient Greece and Rome: women in one room, men in the other. Marriage bed was only for the simple people or for the poor, Hmm. apparently. In medieval times, 830 AD, the bed was apparently only shared for uh, procreation, Mm -hmm. and they sort of say, "Well, it is unclear from what point men and women started sharing beds." 1500s, there seems to be some pictures. And in 1737, pictures of women complaining of sleeping behaviors of husbands. (laughs) Despite impairments to sleep, such as reduced sleep quality, most couples in, I guess, Western society, uh, want to share their bed as it's sort of linked to feelings of safety and intimacy. Yeah. So, sleep positions might be related to a couple's relationship. It's theorized that intense body contact while sleeping is related to high relationship intimacy. Mm -hmm. But no empirical evidence. So, essentially, that's a, the theories, you know, the position might be related to how the relationship is going. Yeah. And they kind of talk about sort of examples of this, sort of autobiographical examples of this where, you know, it's close at the start and then when they start fighting, they're kind of
2: apart. And,
1: and I'm assuming that they draw on sort of like really scientific sources like Cosmo and things like women's <laughs> magazines that always seem to have articles of like is this how you sleep? This is what it means about your relationship. No, no. no?
0: They, they didn't go down that path. Oh, they, good. Um, no. So we're stuck it's, in it's, the it's much scientific much, realm. Not, no, definitely. <laughs> much more scientific. So, that, so basically, they wanted to look at that, but also they wanted to look at like some other factors such as duration of relationship. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely think that that would... Yeah. Like when I was reading this, it was like, well, it's like, you, you're not going to be spooning every night if no. you've been married for 20 years. No. Like It's just like, no, man. I just want to go to bed. Yeah. Like, so... Method, 90 students, age 21 uh-huh. was the mean age, range 19, 31. So I'm going to straight up, not a wide range of a sample. And they talk about this mm. in limitations, right? 77% female, mm-hmm. all in a relationship. The questionnaire about the position that they sleep in with their partner. And a subsample of 60 students were asked about the quality of their relationship. And what I'll tweet out the picture of the... Of the diagram that they use, it's
1: like the f- options,
0: yeah. So, the, so that instead of like describing words, they had like diagrams of like two people in bed. It's yeah. pretty funny.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just showing you. Now. Yeah. So, average relationship length: twenty-one months. Twenty percent live together. So This is like a university age yeah. sample. So, so this is where I kind of like why I have a few kind of queries about the thing. It would be very interesting if you got like long-term. Yeah, like yes. thirty-year-olds, yeah. like that kind of thing, or you know, forty-year-olds or whatever. So, they had variable amounts of nights sleeping together. They found that the preferred sleeping position, mm-hmm. they started in 70% of the time. Okay. Yep. Yeah, right. So, it was pretty consistent. Yeah. So, so the breakdown was 44% was spooning, Mm-hmm. 22% was her lying on him. Mm-hmm. 22% was back-to-back with what looked like their bums touching. Yeah. Right. And 3.3 percent was either intertwined, like mm-hmm. right, so face to face or back to back, not touching. Is yep. what it looked like to me. Yeah, they ranked them on how intense or close they were, like like physically, mm-hmm. and then they did some correlations. So they found a small but significant relationship between the duration of the relationship and the ranked position. So which basically means the longer time you were together the more distance you had apart, yeah. which is exactly what I was yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> which The total score on the... They gave them a relationship questionnaire. The total mm-hmm. score on that relationship questionnaire and sleep position was unrelated. Okay, yep. But they did find that some subscales indicated there was relationship. So the more intimate pos- the position and scale tenderness was positively correlated. Mm-hmm. All right. The least intimate position correlated negatively with the relationship quality. But it was at point, the p-value was point oh six. Okay. Like, oh, poor buggers. Yeah. Almost. So close. So it was, it was a minus 0.247 mm. correlation. So there's a positive association with age and the least intimate position they mm-hmm. fall asleep in. Although they did say, well, you know, there's a pretty small age range. So yep. be careful about that. And basically they said the more time you spend together, the more frequent the starting sleeping position. So you kind of get in a habit of sleeping yeah. in the same Way, yeah. Right? So, long story short, there seems to be an indication that intimacy of a couple's position at sleep onset, that seems related to overall relationship quality. But there's also this, like, long relationship duration. Yeah. Is also important. And age. So. Mm. That, so. Interesting. So, it was actually kind of exactly what I thought. Yeah. Like...
1: It's sometimes <laughs> nice to have those things confirmed.
0: But it was, also, <laughs> it was also really funny to, like, see diagrams of people. Yep.
1: Yeah. You know. I feel like I've seen a comedian who not just had... Like who drew on those kind of diagrams that are presented in women's magazines and then added a bunch of comical ones of couples in odd positions and with extra people and with things like that and kind of said what it meant about your relationship. Oh, really? Yeah. It's
0: great. See, I've seen mainly seen like ones with like like where there's like a baby and kind of like yeah. they're just <laughs> describing like the kind of like the baby sleeping across both pillows. Yeah, like the, the you know the parents are are yeah. just like struggling. Yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I, I certainly think amongst sort of people I've talked to <laughs> that a lot of it is particularly like long term relationships. Yeah, there's like a period of like snuggle and then and there's like not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Just, we're here to sleep. We're here to sleep.
0: Leave me mm. alone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see you all day. So, <laughs> last one. Okay. So, the last one I've got, I went searching for Paris syndrome. Have you heard of that?
0: Paris syndrome? Mm. No, what's that?
1: Yes. There was a, I read an article, it was like a news article, about this syndrome that affects Japanese tourists visiting Paris. And so I went searching to see whether there was any research on it and found this paper, which is a review of psychological disorders named after cities. Mm. So it's called...
0: Huh? Oh, because no, because I, I think I've heard one about, like, white women going to, like, Jerusalem or Israel. Yeah. Yep. Okay, great.
1: So it's called A Note on Psychological Disorders Named After Cities yep. by Ernest Abel in... 2014 in names so it's broken down into tourist city syndromes hostage city syndromes and then just miscellaneous yeah i think the tourist ones are the best yeah yeah so there is jerusalem syndrome which is apparently the most well-known and Affects a lot of people. So, essentially, this is a psychological breakdown that occurs shortly after arriving in Jerusalem. So, symptoms include religious delusions, so like believing you're a religious figure, Mm. and lots of sort of roaming the streets preaching publicly. Yeah. Or obsessing about body purification to the point of doing things like shaving off all your body hair, repetitive bathing, compulsively cutting your finger and toenails.
0: Yeah, because I think the example I heard was like middle-aged women getting lost roaming the desert in like white shirts or something Mm. like that and believing that they were like one of the apostles or
2: something
1: yeah so it was first described in the 30s and then there are detailed clinical records collected from the 70s by psychiatrists it affects hundreds of tourists every year wow and approximately 40 are admitted to hospital yeah and the symptoms generally subside within a few weeks of leaving jerusalem so then there's paris syndrome which is what i went searching for which, is, uh, which involves physical and psychological symptoms and it mainly affects Japanese visitors on their first visit to Paris. So it affects approximately 12 Japanese tourists a year. The symptoms include anxiety, delusions and hallucinations and it was first reported in 2004 in a French psychiatric journal. So it's believed to impact Japanese tourists specifically because of sort of travel exhaustion and then the contrast between their culture and French culture. Yeah, So it's far more informal in France and far more kind of busyness on the streets and that sort of thing of communication between people, you know, market sellers shouting things out stuff like that that they're not used to and then there's also a contrast between this idealized image of paris mm. and then what the reality actually is so the japanese embassy has a 24-hour hotline for tourists with the no. syndrome No, yep to help them find medical treatment and most improve a few after a few days of bed rest yeah some are flown home under a doctor's care because their hallucinations and things I don't see, resolve
0: it's just like a couple of you know, days of pain and you would be fine yeah interesting <laughs> Is there a theme to the delusions? delusions? No. No. It's no.
1: It's broader, whereas Jerusalem's, it's specifically yes, specific, really yeah. religious, and they question whether places like Vatican City or things like that would have a similar, a similar kind of syndrome because it's so laden with religious... Mm. Yeah. There's also then Florence syndrome, which is also called Stendhal syndrome, which is a behavioural syndrome triggered by anticipation and experience of Florence's cultural r- richness. So they have symptoms such as a rapid heartbeat, fainting, hallucinations, and two thirds of those affected develop paranoid psychosis. First reported in the 80s, and tourists tend to be taken to the ED directly from museums or art galleries. No. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah. And most are Western European tourists. Yeah. And treatment is bed rest. Yeah. So it's a common kind of theme. And then there's Venice syndrome, which is people who travel to Venice specifically for the purpose of uh, suicide.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's depressing.
1: Yeah. So most are from Germany and they wondered if it was, if it started because of the Death in Venice movie. But so those who have survived these attempts have told researchers that they went to venice because of the romance of the place of the kind of mystery and romantic feel of it that they wanted a sense of that with their suicide
0: right yeah because i was gonna say like venice and romeo and juliet but yeah yeah so it's interesting
1: yeah so that affects far less people but it's interesting that their motivation for choosing Venice, and they'll travel to Venice just for that.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. It'll be probably a bit difficult to pick up.
1: Yeah. So like, it's the ones who have survived and yeah, been taken to a, hospital. you can't really but,
0: interview dead persons. No.
1: So. Yeah. So then there are the hostage city syndromes. So Stock there's home. Stockholm. Yep. yep. So, which is the sort of paradoxically close feelings towards your captor. Mm. and often there's a lot of cooperation with the captor as well. Mm. Or Ac- becoming like a co captor. So, so tell me about it
0: because I read an article on that.
1: It's fascinating. So apparently it happens in about a quarter of cases of people who are in hostage situations.
0: So you, well no, so I read I read an article and they look like looked at it and they seemed to think there was maybe a publication bias. Oh, mm, interesting. And that sort of sort of wasn't like super agreed upon about criteria, what it actually but basically it was that form closeness to your captors mm. don 't escape when you perhaps could have and collaborate excuse, with them to hold well, other people sometimes yeah or ex- and excuse the yeah, thing. but they they didn't seem they weren 't sure whether it was a real actually a real phenomenon, mm. like it sort of said, well, maybe we need to investigate it, yeah, it seems so, to be far more I was far do less that for the pod but I yeah.
1: Yeah, far less common, but it sort of came from a bank robbery and hostage in the seventies so, yeah, yeah. in Stockholm, where someone didn't said that they were more afraid of being rescued by police than yeah. their captors. Um, then there's also Lima Syndrome, which is the opposite. So captors develop feelings for their hostages, yeah. and it comes from a hostage crisis in Lima in Peru yeah. in the nineties, where they held their hostages for four months, and then there's London syndrome, which is named after a hostage situation in London where one or more of the hostages challenges their captors to such an extent that then when the hostages decide that they have to harm someone, they choose the one that has basically annoyed them the most. And so there are kind of cases of people who are sort of doing the opposite of what you'd expect them to do in that situation of really antagonizing the captor, arguing with them, fighting with them, stuff like that, while everyone else is kind of... Laying low. Yeah. And then there's the last few, which are just kind of miscellaneous syndromes. There's Amsterdam syndrome, which is about men who show pictures of their naked spouses online or in other places, or just like to people that they know. Right. Um, and it's, it was first described in 2008, and it's primarily found among Italian men who are posting... Images and it's named after Amsterdam because of the red light district in the windows so and yeah, kind right. of displaying. Yep, yeah.
0: well, It should just be called illegal. In yeah, a way.
1: exactly. Brooklyn syndrome, which is a behavioural syndrome describing a pattern of men behaving in an ov- overly argumentative or combative way, first described by navy psychiatrists in World War Two, hmm. and they thought that it was like the men of Brooklyn. Yep. And then the last one, Detroit Syndrome, which is a form of age discrimination where older workers are replaced with younger workers.
0: Yeah, right. Could be to do with the auto workers.
1: Yeah. And to do with kind of car functioning and yeah. kind of replacing the old model with the new model.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: there you go. Syndrome is <sighs> named after cities.
0: Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> not pejorative at all for some no, of them.
1: No, not at all.
0: No.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I still, the hotline for Japanese tourists still amazes me. Yeah. For Paris Syndrome. That's... There's a 24-hour hotline.
2: That's
0: great. It is. I and mean, it, it's interesting with Stockholm Syndrome how in popular culture... Yeah. That it's actually, often portrayed. That that is, that is talked about as this kind of thing and people use it to joke around and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so okay. much for listening. That was great. Um, yeah. I hope you stuck with us all the way through. And don't forget to rate, review the show, uh, follow us on Twitter. We'll t- tweet out a couple of things from this pod. Yeah. And we will see you next
1: week. Sounds good. See you then. See ya. Bye. Bye.